This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, after two decades of war, Afghanistan falls to the Taliban. According to Reuters news agency, quote, it took the Taliban just over a week to seize control of the whole country after a lightning sweep that ended in Kabul as government forces trained and equipped by the United States and others at a cost of billions of dollars retreated. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Days after the Taliban took over the presidential palace, U.S. President Joe Biden, in an address to the nation, reiterated his rationale for withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency. Many observers would dispute the notion that the administration, quote-unquote, planned for every contingency, given the rapid drawdown of U.S. forces over the summer, the cutting of air and logistical support from Afghan forces, already bereft of adequate support from the Kabul government, and the failure to swiftly vet and evacuate vulnerable Afghans who loyally supported the U.S. mission. However, it was former President Donald Trump who, by inking a U.S.-Taliban peace agreement in Doha in February 2020, set in motion the chain of events which led to the Taliban victory over Afghan security forces. Even then-Senate Majority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell, now Minority Leader under the Biden administration, was very skeptical of the U.S.-Taliban peace deal and was opposed to withdrawing the remainder of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Here is Mitch McConnell reacting to the current situation in Afghanistan. What we have seen is an unmitigated disaster, a stain on the reputation of the United States of America. Every terrorist around the world, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Africa, are cheering the defeat of the United States military by a terrorist organization in Afghanistan. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking to reporters days ago in his home state of Kentucky. Despite the fact that polls reflect that a majority of Americans were in favor of ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, many have criticized the disorganized execution of the withdrawal. Retired four-star General David Petraeus, who once served as commander of the NATO-led military mission in Afghanistan, argued in several published interviews that, quote, Mr. Biden's team did not recognize the risk incurred by the swift withdrawal of intelligence and reconnaissance drones and close air support, as well as the withdrawal of thousands of contractors who kept the Afghan Air Force flying, all in the middle of a particularly intense fighting season, close quote. On this edition of Encounter, we will examine the ramifications and implications of the U.S. military retreat from Afghanistan with our two distinguished regional analysts. Lisa Curtis is a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, a policy group here in Washington. Previously, Lisa served as deputy assistant to the president and senior director for South and Central Asia at the National Security Council under the Trump administration. And Marvin Weinbaum, he's professor emeritus of political science at the University of Illinois and served as analyst for Pakistan and Afghanistan in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Intelligence and Research from 1999 to 2003. Currently, he is director 
for Afghanistan and Pakistan studies at the Middle East Institute, and that's a Washington-based think tank. And both guests join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Pleasure. So, Lisa Curtis, uh, let me begin with you. As I said in my introduction, you are on record for opposing this decision to withdraw all U.S. forces. You thought it was a mistake and that a far better choice would have been to keep roughly 2,000 U.S. forces in Afghanistan. But that ship has sailed. What is your assessment of the execution of the U.S. withdrawal? And could it have been handled differently to mitigate political and humanitarian results we're seeing? I certainly think that the withdrawal could have been handled better. It was done very abruptly. And the fact that the administration withdrew, you know, 16,000 or so contractors from the country all at once was not necessary. These contractors helped maintain equipment. They helped keep the air assets flying. They were really an important part of the overall effort. And I think the psychological impact of how abrupt the withdrawal was handled, that that did have an impact on the Afghan national security forces. So I think the combination of a very abrupt withdrawal coupled with the Doha agreement, which was very much in favor of the Taliban and undermined the legitimacy of the Afghan government, that this combined to really just pull the rug out from under the Afghans very quickly and made it appear that the U.S. was kind of completely abandoning their partners that they had fought with for the last 20 years. And certainly some of President Biden's remarks in the last week have not been helpful. It's not necessary to denigrate the Afghan security forces when we have fought and died with them over the last 20 years. And in fact, we would not have been able to make the gains against al-Qaeda without the support of our Afghan partners. And it's just not correct to say they didn't fight for their country. The Afghans lost nearly 70,000 soldiers over the last 20 years fighting for their country. So the fact that either they were ordered to stand down or they abandoned the fight, we may never know exactly what happened behind the scenes, what was being negotiated. But I don't think it's becoming to insult and denigrate the Afghan National Security Forces when they have made so many sacrifices for us, partly for us over the last 20 years. Marvin Weinbaum, let me get your take on the current situation, the execution of the withdrawal and President Biden's statements. Well, I subscribe to so much, if not all, of what Lisa said. Uh, I think that we probably had to leave on the ground more than 2,000 if we were going to really be of any assistance. But most of all was the air power. Uh, Once it was clear that not only would the Afghan security forces be deprived of intelligence that we were providing and logistical information and maintenance through our contractors, but that we were giving them the close air support, which really gave them confidence to hold on to some very difficult pieces of uh, territory. Once it was clear that uh, this was going to be withdrawn, and this process here, which has led us to where we are now, really began 
back in April when it was clear that the Biden administration was going to accept the idea that we were leaving for sure, except that no, it wouldn't be May 1st that we were leaving. It would be the 11th of September. Uh, Of course, then we brought that date up. So what I'm getting at here is that the sense here of the will to fight I think, came out of the Afghan security forces when they realized that all that they had depended upon to keep the fight going, and I agree entirely with Lisa saying that denigrating them, yes, denigrate their officer corps, which clearly bears a great responsibility for the fact that they didn't perform as well as they might have. But the foot soldiers certainly was courageous, and that figure of 70,000, you know, compares to what we in the international community have lost. And while no deaths are to be excused, nevertheless, they performed given what they had. As far as the withdrawal is concerned, once it was clear that, as I say, the, the rug had been pulled out from under them, we should have anticipated that things were going to progress much more quickly, that that momentum was going to have an effect as it did. Having said that, no one that I'm aware of in the intelligence community, think tank community or anywhere else, expected so rapid a decline here of their forces. And so given that, preparing for the evacuation became something that was entirely impossible. They had been viewing evacuation is something that they could handle over a matter of months. And when it turned into days, naturally, we found the kind of trying desperately to do what they've been doing in this period of time since the Taliban took over control. It's failure also, I should mention here, of coordination with the Kabul government and with our allies. This is a great failure and the one that can't be excused by the fact that we were determined to do this. Clearly, that determination here had to take into account how to go about this as much as the decision to actually execute it. Well, back to you, Lisa Curtis. Other analysts are saying that setting a date certain, whether it's May 1 or whatever, rather than depending on conditions on the ground, it's also telegraphing to the enemy so that they could prepare. And that is, in fact, what we saw. Now the Taliban are in Kabul. Do you see this as a victory, as some analysts say, for jihadists around the world? You know, they conquered this huge, powerful American army. They forced them to retreat. What message does this send and how dangerous do you think it is now for U.S. national security interests, notwithstanding President Biden's assertion that we accomplished our goal, we degraded al-Qaeda and so forth? That doesn't mean they might not come back. How do you see the situation? Well, I think it's a very dangerous situation, and I think several former officials have spoken up, people like former Defense Secretary and CIA Chief Leon Panetta, who has said he has no doubt the country will reemerge as a terrorist hotbed. And we've already seen the Taliban release thousands of people from jail, many of whom are al-Qaeda, ISIS terrorists, who just consider the fact that we spent billions and had, you know, hundreds of military 
intelligence operations to put these people behind bars. And now overnight, they've been released. They're roaming freely in the country. So I am very concerned about terrorist networks rebuilding. And I don't think that the Doha agreement had very strong counterterrorism elements to it. It simply says the Taliban will not allow al-Qaeda to use the soil of Afghanistan to threaten the security of the United States and its allies. So what happens when al-Qaeda doesn't ask the Taliban for permission to conduct a terrorist strike against the United States or one of its allies? My guess is the Taliban would argue, well, they didn't know about it, similar to the way that they did after the 9-11 attacks. So I think we, we need to consider the fact that the Taliban still has strong links to al-Qaeda. The United Nations has been putting out reports indicating this. They still have operational ties, ideological links, even intermarried in some cases. So the U.S. cannot abandon Afghanistan. We cannot completely disengage. We've got to keep our eye on what happens there with regard to terrorist networks. And that's something that we can work with other countries. We'll have to work from other bases outside the country, places like the Middle East. It won't be as easy. We don't have our intelligence networks there. So this is an enormous concern for everybody in the region. And this is one of the reasons that even though it wasn't a satisfying solution to keep a small counterterrorism presence, which I would add that NATO countries would have kept seven to 8,000 troops as well. So it wasn't just the U.S. who would have remained there. But at least we would have protected our vital counterterrorism interest. And that we cannot do any more, at least not easily and without a great deal of effort. Marvin Weinbaum, do you agree with Lisa that now that the Taliban are in power, at least for now, that Afghanistan could become another terrorist hotbed, that it uh, emboldens jihadists? And by the same token, I'd like you, with your finger on the pulse of Pakistan, to perhaps comment on the role of Pakistan, not only in the past, but going forward vis-a-vis the Taliban. I would, uh, again, agree with uh, Lisa. I want to mention also that the idea that we could somehow deal with these terrorist groups through an over-the-horizon air capacity, this was, uh, was public relations. There's no way in which we can provide the kind of intelligence to our air forces in order for them to carry on the kind of operations that they would if they could, for example, see the concentration of these forces. But what we're talking about are operations which are well disguised in which, except for the fact that they may set up training camps, are unlikely to be easy targets. So the intelligence that we need, the targeting that we would need is just not going to be available. And in doing so, we probably would also find ourselves attacking Al-Qaeda as well because they would be embedded with them. Now, you have to keep in mind, too, that these groups at the moment can't be viewed, I'm talking about it, Islamic State, uh, Khorasan, and Al-Qaeda, They can't be viewed as a threat, but they can become a threat. And that's the point, that given this kind of environment in which will now, I think, prevail, they can grow. And there will be no way to stop them because, in fact, the Taliban 
and these groups have so much in common. What we tend to focus on is that they have different agendas at the moment. But ultimately, they all follow the same school of Islam. They all are, we call them Salafists, which is essentially Wahhabi, Diobandi Islam. And there is no reason once the Taliban have consolidated their power that they would not see the cause of these groups as basically compatible with their own cause. As far as Pakistan is concerned, there was a time in the past when Pakistan, if it wanted to, could have put the Afghan Taliban out of business. They were so dependent on them. That has changed now. Over the last several years, the Taliban has effectively found its base inside Afghanistan. The dependence on Pakistan has not disappeared by any means. But Pakistan's leverage with them, its influence on them in order to get them to do things that they would rather not do. You know, even going back into the 1990s, we could not, and the Pakistanis too, could not get the Taliban to take actions when they were determined to do so. And that remains the case. They have defied Pakistan as well. I don't want to minimize Pakistan's role because it's been so important in getting them where they are. But I think we should be cognizant of the fact that now Pakistan's assistance beyond what they have already done in getting them to negotiate. But then again, that negotiations was in their interest because through those negotiations, they didn't really negotiate. What they did was sit there and watch as concessions after concession were being made by the United States and the Kabul government. So we certainly are going to need Pakistan's cooperation now. But to believe that Pakistan can play a major role in determining the course of the Taliban's actions in the near future, I think is probably unwarranted. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Lisa Curtis, former senior advisor for South Asia on the U.S. National Security Council, now senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and Marvin Weinbaum, from whom you just heard, director for Afghanistan and Pakistan studies at the Middle East Institute. And back to you, Lisa, in the few minutes we have left, we'll do sort of a lightning round. So quickly, where we are now, do you see a civil war breaking out? We're seeing pockets of resistance. We're hearing that President Ashraf Ghani, who fled, wants to come back. We're seeing protests in the streets. We're seeing women and girls trying to advocate for their rights, to retain their rights. What do you see going forward vis-a-vis how the Taliban intends to try to govern differently than they did back in the 90s? And what's going to happen on the ground? Well, I think it's too early to tell how the Taliban is going to rule the country. Right now, they're on a charm offensive. We saw Zabil Mujahid recently talk about how women were going to be able to work and go to school. There would be no reprisal killings against people who work for the Ghani government. So they're saying all the right things. However, I think the international community must be careful and judge them on their actions. Are they going to allow girls to stay in school? Are they going to allow women to go to universities? Because frankly, 
We have seen reports that in Herat, women were being blocked from getting in the university. We've also heard reports that women are being forced to stay at home and schools are being closed. So it's kind of a chaotic situation right now. And despite the nice words that Taliban leadership is using from Kabul, I think we have to wait and see what happens on the human rights front, as well as the terrorism issue. I think until we see action that demonstrates the Taliban will not allow a terrorist reemergence. Only until those two conditions are met should we even consider recognizing the Taliban. Look, Russia, China, Pakistan, they're likely to rush in and recognize the Taliban, but they don't have the same interest in preserving civil liberties. And they're going to think about their own counterterrorism interests. They each have individual groups that they're concerned about that they'll bargain with the Taliban to have those interests protected. So I think the U.S. and its like-minded allies need to have a very high standard for considering engagement or potentially recognition of the Taliban. And particularly, we have to wait until the evacuations are over and the dust settles. Right now, there's a lot of focus on getting people out of Afghanistan. And once that mission is complete, only then we will start to see really how the situation is going to settle. And I don't have a lot of confidence that these pockets of resistance are going to prevail. The Taliban was able to come in too quickly. And I think that these pockets of resistance are going to have a hard time hanging on to any territory in the country. Marv Weinbaum, same question to you, how the Taliban even though these are early days, how they may go forward. Will they curry favor with the international community, make good on some of these commitments in order to get some assistance, or will they revert to their old ways? How do you see it? That's an important point because we have put all of our hope now that the international community, by withholding perhaps in recognition and in various kinds of assistance, can get the Taliban to behave in a civil manner, keep it from doing the worst of what it is capable of doing, as we saw in the past. As it is, I believe we misunderstand the Taliban. The Taliban will take whatever you can give them. They gladly would want recognition. They would want to have as much technical support as we and others can provide. However, every indication is they would give little or nothing in exchange. Now, they think that that's okay in the sense that these countries, particularly the regional countries now, are in fact going to be coming to them, offering them even before they make their own requests. And what I'm getting at here is all of the neighboring countries are concerned about one thing, keeping what has happened in Afghanistan in Afghanistan. They're concerned about trying to contain this kind of militant, radical Islam and its tentacles, which are, in this case, the various insurgent movements that have as their targets China, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Iran as well. There's a insurgent group among the Baluch. So what I'm suggesting here is that in an effort to contain the actions of these groups such that They believe that the Taliban will act against them. They are going to be offering them the kind of support that the Taliban will get gratuitously. So, Lisa, the last word to you. What are the implications for U.S. credibility in the world as a result of the widely perceived mishandling of the withdrawal and the U.S. ability to recruit allies 
in other conflict zones? Did we cede ground to our adversaries like Russia, China to destabilize the region, which would be contrary to U.S. interests? Given how badly the withdrawal was handled and the miscalculation on how quickly the Taliban would make its way back to power, I think that one way the administration could redeem some U.S. credibility and honor would be to do everything it can, take all the time it needs and make the resources available to extract as many of our Afghan partners as possible and resettle them in the United States. This would show the world that we don't abandon people we have partnered with for the last 20 years. So I think that's one thing the U.S. can do moving forward. Even though this situation is likely to leave a major stain on the Biden administration, I don't think we should extrapolate and say this means that the Biden administration is going to pull back from all alliances and partnerships or can't be relied upon. You just have to look at what the Biden administration has done so far with regard to the China challenge and rebuilding partnerships with Europe, promoting the Quad dialogue with the U.S., India, Japan, to see that there will continue to be a lot of effort put toward supporting and partnering with our allies in other parts of the world. On that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this Afghan edition of Encounter. We will continue to follow this story and bring you additional analysis as events unfold. I'd like to thank my guest, Lisa Curtis, former senior national security official, now director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, and Marvin Weinbaum, Director for Afghanistan and Pakistan Studies at the Middle East Institute. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.